One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Things are getting exciting. I'm talking to you on Monday the 23rd of November 2020. We've just had the preliminary results announced from AstraZeneca and Oxford University's vaccine for COVID-19. They look fairly optimistic, thus joining two other companies who have announced results. We are expecting vaccines to be delivered into the arms of people before the end of December 2020. That's a record, folks. It's a record. From identifying a virus to having a vaccine to deal with it in less than 11 months. I was joined on this podcast by an absolute card-carrying legend, Paul Offit. He's an American pediatrician. He specialises in infectious diseases, vaccines, immunology, virology, got all that. He's the co-inventor of a vaccine. I mean, that's big time. The co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine. He's a professor at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a member of the Center for Disease Controls, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Um, He's a total dude, uh, and he's also a wonderful scholar of the history of vaccination programs in the US and around the world. I want to talk to him about the huge campaign to immunize kids against polio, the tragedy and the triumph of that campaign that saw unsafe vaccines given to hundreds of thousands of kids, whilst millions more were successfully vaccinated. It feels like an important time to be talking about the history of vaccine development, safety, rollout, everybody. Here we go. Enjoy. If you want to go and watch as many history shows as you can possibly stomach, go to History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history, a new digital history channel we've got going on. It's all kicking off over there at the moment. It'd be great to have you subscribe. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free. Your second month is one pound, euro or dollar. Inoculate yourself against boredom by heading over to History Hit TV so you can watch history documentaries. There's also something of a debate has broken out on the Twitter feed. I mean, I, I'm surprised this is happening. We're selling out of knight's helmets at the moment, knitted knight's helmets, but we've been told they are not knitted knight's helmets. They are, in fact, crocheted knight's hats. You can get involved in that debate if you want at historyhit.com slash debate. It's, it's a thing that is now happening, apparently. But in the meantime, everyone, enjoy Paul Offit. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Uh, it's a huge day. It's a huge month at the moment for vaccines. We'll get on to the. We'll get on a, a bit more to the contemporary scene in a second. But let's go back. Let's talk about polio. Just how much of a spectre. It, people have forgotten today what polio was like uh, as a, as a haunting prospect in in the mid century, the mid twentieth century, in uh, everywhere in the world. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are many parallels, actually, from the polio story in the mid-50s to today. One is parents were scared to death of this virus. I mean, it, would, it could paralyze 30,000, 40,000 children a year. It could kill 1,500 children a year, this virus. And what made it particularly heinous, aside from its unique capacity to permanently harm children, was most of the transmission was asymptomatic. You didn't know who you were getting it from, just like SARS-CoV-2 today, where you don't know really where it's coming from. So therefore, you're scared of everyone. The second thing was that um, in the in the race to make a vaccine, um, that, that was really warp speed one, because, you know, basically it wasn't the government, but it was the March of Dimes in the United States, the so-called National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, that said, we'll pay for the phase three trial. We'll pay the millions and millions of dollars for a phase three trial. We'll pay for five companies to make it at risk, not knowing whether it's safe, not knowing whether it's effective. We'll pay for all that. That's what speeded it up. The same reason that this has been speeded up. So uh, there are definitely parallels. And it was, it was a shared national tragedy that was handled that way. So My mum's family were in Toronto in the 1950s and got wiped out from one dinner party. Several members of the same family developed terrible lifelong... One died and, and several developed lifelong complications as a result of getting polio. It seemed that there were surges of polio. Does it work like a pulmonary pandemic? Does it kind of come and go or was it just there all the time? No, polio was there all the time. There were three different strains that caused polio. And um, sometimes one or another strain circulated, but there, were, there, was, there was polio every year. Every summer meant polio in the United States. I mean, it started to really rear its head in the 30s and 40s with industrialization, actually, is what happened. I mean, the polio was always around. And what would happen is, you know, everybody got infected. Mothers got infected. They would passively transfer um, their antibodies that they had from that infection to their newborn. And then because newborns or kids in the first year of life or so would get exposed to polio, it was sort of like this passive active immunity. The, the antibodies from their mother protected them, and then they would get this active immune response from, from the virus itself. So they were protected. What happened with industrialization is that the instance of polio then started to decrease as people were uh, sanitation improved. So now you weren't exposed to polio until you were five, six, seven years of age, and the antibodies you may have gotten from your mother had gone away. So that's when you saw the five to nine-year-old um, outbreaks of polio. And what happened in the mid-1950s? Why, why was there such an effort around this vaccine push? Was it the technology had changed? The money became available? What, what was it about that key period? Well, the technology has changed. The thing with polio is it reproduces itself in um, nervous system cells, like cells of the brain, cells of the spinal cord. If you make a vaccine using cells from the brain and spinal cord, you always run the risk of inducing an immune response against the protein that sort of serves as the, the sheathing of nerve cells, you know, like the rubber sheathing of a wire. Um, an electrical wire. And so it, it, a protein was called myelin basic protein. So when you inoculated people with that, with this sort of nervous tissue derived polio viruses, you could induce this immune response against your own nervous system, essentially, which could cause paralysis, it could cause coma, it could cause death, it was a problem. So um, that was solved by a group at, at Harvard he headed by John Enders, where they showed you could grow polio virus in non-nervous system cells, cells like monkey kidney cells. And with that, you could now, that sort of opened up the, the field to be able to make a vaccine by the early 50s. And are those breakthroughs taking place? Is there government involvement? Is, is there government leadership in those vaccines? Or is this just departments at universities, specialists just, just pursuing this uh, out, of the, out of their own, for their own research interests? You talk about with polio or with today? With polio. 
No, well, they, they, I mean, there were polio vaccines in the 19, you know, 20 years before um, the Salk vaccine in the 1950s. In the 1930s, there were two polio vaccines, one by Maurice, made by Maurice Brody in New York, the other by John Comer in Philadelphia, which failed. They actually caused polio because in both cases, although they tried to inactivate the virus with a chemical, in both cases, they failed. So there were children who got that vaccine who got polio from the vaccine. That set the, that set the uh, program back about 20 years, really. Wow. And then And then we get the... The great success of this polio vaccine in the mid-1950s. How big was that national immunization push? It was huge. Uh, first of all, the, the, the study that was done um, involved giving 420,000 children the vaccine, giving 200,000 children placebo, that was a, and, and then 1.2 million children served as observed uninoculated controls. That was a 1.8 million child study. That no, no, no medical product, I think, has ever been tested to such a at such a level. I mean, I honestly, I think if that kind of, if a 1.8 million child study was done today, I think it would cost $6 billion, really. Um, and we mass, you know, five companies stepped forward to mass produce it um, at risk. That was just a, an amazing national effort. And, and it was truly national. I mean, the, the, the March of Dimes was a private philanthropic organization where people would send their dimes in to, you know, to support this. It was, it was our vaccine. It was America's vaccine. It was the American public's vaccine, even more so than pharmaceutical companies. We paid for that vaccine. And so we felt it was our vaccine. And then there was, however, when you mentioned these private companies that were helping to mass produce it, there was one disaster. Right. Um, so, so five companies chose, were selected to make that vaccine. One company, Cutter Laboratories of Berkeley, California, made it badly. Uh, what they failed to do was they failed to fully inactivate um, the poliovirus that was in the vaccine for a number of reasons. And what, what happened then was that uh, about 120,000 children in the West and Southwest were inoculated with live, fully virulent poliovirus, thinking it was a poliovirus vaccine. Um, about 40,000 of those children developed abortive or short-lived polio, meaning transient weakness, transient paralysis. About 164 were permanently paralyzed and 10 were killed. I think it was the worst biological disaster in this country's history. And it wasn't just Cutter. Wyeth Laboratories also made a vaccine that paralyzed and killed children, just not nearly to that extent. I think more reasonably, it could have been called the scale-up incident. We just... Uh, weren't very good at going from sort of 10 or 100 or 1,000 doses to tens of millions of doses. That's the hardest part of vaccines. I mean, as pe many people say in the vaccine world, the hardest part of making vaccines is making vaccines. I mean, you have to scale them up and make sure that it looks exactly like it did when you were working with it in your laboratory. And that's hard. Well, that seems like a fairly important lesson from history today. Uh, let's talk about what the the impact, the legacy of that that, that terrible, uh, the, the Cutter incident. What, what was the effect that that had on public health policy and delivery in the US and elsewhere? It was the birth of vaccine regulation in the United States. We went from about 10 people um, in the federal government who oversaw vaccines to 150 within a very short period of time. It was the birth of something called consistency lots, which still exists today, where you show you have to make a certain number of lots of vaccine um, that have the exact same biological characteristics. See, the hard thing about making vaccines is they're biologicals. They're not small molecule drugs. I mean, if you make, for example, amoxicillin, it's very easy to say I have 50 milligrams of amoxicillin in this tablet from this batch and 50 milligrams of amoxicillin in this tablet from this batch. But biological is really the process is the product. And so it's the process that gets regulated. It's hard to characterize it uh, otherwise. So therefore, 
a whole new re- a regu- a regulatory system is introduced as a result of this. That's right. Uh, it was the birth of vaccine regulation in the United States. And, and um, as is invariably true, there's a historian named Mike, Michael Harris who said uh, that uh, the history of, um, of, fed- of, of drug regulation is built on tombstones. And that's always true. Now, did that, what, what effect did it have on the public? I mean, is this the beginning of a sort of a, a miss, well, not beginning, but is this, do we see any impact on a kind of mistrust of scientists and mistrust of big government regulation, the anti-vax movement? Was, was Cutter instance important in that respect? Interestingly, not at all. If you, it, Cutter went to court. I mean, obviously they were uh, held accountable for their, their tragic uh, mistake and they went to court again and again. But if you look at the exit interviews with the people who, um, who served on juries, they actually wanted to find Cutter not guilty or not negligent. The reason being that they thought it was a process of evolution. They, they, the defense explained correctly that it only, wasn't only Cutter that had a problem, that all of the vaccine makers had, had difficulties in activating the virus on a mass scale. And so the, the jurors intelligently reasoned that this was a evolutionary process and that we just hadn't gotten to the point of, of, of evolution in the science to be able to say that Cutter in any sense knowingly made a mistake. You know, the, the safety tests weren't, weren't really there yet. The capacity to mass produce uh, consistently wasn't there yet. It just wasn't there yet. And, and the, the jurors realized that. And I, it had very little impact, I think, on the public. The public generally trusted pharmaceutical companies. I know it's hard to imagine there ever was a time like that. that basically, the public believed that the, the pharmaceutical manufacturers were doing the best they could. And in fact, I mean, the people at Cutter Laboratories who made that vaccine gave it to their own children. They didn't think anything was wrong, obviously. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 
Following on, so the birth of vaccine regulation, how's that worked? I mean, if you look back at the, the seven decades that have followed that, was that a, has it been a success? Yes, I think so. It was really almost 50 years before another vaccine was withdrawn because of an issue of safety. It was There was a vaccine in the late 1990s to prevent a virus called rotavirus, which is a common cause of fever, vomiting, and diarrhea in babies, um, that was found to be a very rare cause of intestinal blockage called intussusception. This vaccine was on the market for about 10 months when it was very quickly found to cause a problem, and then it was off the market. Um, and that's really been it. In terms of, of safety, there, that's probably been the only real safety issue. And even there, the, the, the incidence was about one per 30,000 vaccinees. And certainly far more children died, even in the United States every year of rotavirus, than would have ever been hurt by that vaccine. But nonetheless, we were intolerant of any severe side effects, so that vaccine came off the market till it was replaced by a better, safer vaccine seven years later. So that does sound like, though, that there is still, there's still no, um, well, you, you tell me, there's, there's no magic, but there's no silver bullet on vaccine. A lot of this is just observing its effect in human beings and then, and then drawing judgment from that. It's always trial and error. You, you never know about whether or not something works until you put it in people. That's always true. I, I mean, for people in the vaccine world, the old expression is mice lie and monkeys exaggerate. You never really know until you put it in people. And so where, how are you feeling about today? And first of all, in, in, we, hear, we heard so much, didn't we, at the beginning of this outbreak in January, February. It takes, what, what is the record um, speed at which a, a vaccine has, has, re, has gone from uh, identifying the, the, the threat to delivery in the doctor's uh, surgery? Right, so from vi- having a virus in hand to a, vac- a commercial product, the fastest vaccine would be the mumps vaccine which was, um, iso- that virus was isolated by the researcher who made that vaccine, Maurice Hillman, in 1963. That was then a vaccine four years later. But there were a lot of things you could do then that you, could, you couldn't do now. I mean, you, you tested it in far fewer people then. You, you would test the vaccine in 5,000, 6,000 people before you would, uh, before it would get a license. The licensing process was very fast. Um, as a thing from now, where it's much slower. So this, this vaccine, I mean, this virus was in hand in the United States anyway and sequenced in January of 2020. This will be a vaccine very likely that rolls off the assembly line into the arms of the American public in the world, in the world probably by the end of December. One year. Remarkable. That is, and, and what about then, what about the safety? What about the fact that you haven't observed it in enough people? Are you feeling, has that speed, this is obviously the big question, but has that, has that speed involved compromising on safety? So if you look at the size of the trials, Moderna's is a 30,000-person study. Uh, Pfizer's is a 44,000-person study. Johnson Johnson is a 60,000-person study. AstraZeneca also is in the tens of thousands. Um, that's typical for any vaccine. That's typical for any pediatric vaccine. So if that's true, why not just submit these vaccines for licensure like you always do and just get a biological license application like you always do and, and get licensed? And the reason is, is the length of the trial. I mean, the human papillomavirus vaccine was a 30,000-person trial, but it was a seven-year trial. I mean, the rotavirus vaccine that we worked on at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia was a 70,000-person study, but it was a four-year study. But you're not going to do a three- or four-year study for this vaccine. I mean, when it's already killed, say, 250,000 people this year in the United States, you're not going to wait to make sure that it's effective not only for a couple months, which is what you're going to know. I mean, when Pfizer vaccine, Pfizer's vaccine and Moderna's vaccines or AstraZeneca's vaccine or Johnson Johnson's vaccine are approved through, through emergency use authorization, you're only going to know that they were effective for a couple months. 
you're not going to know whether it was effective for six months or a year. On the other hand, you're not going to test it for that long because you can't afford to. So are you taking a risk? Have you reduced a critical amount of uncertainty by saying, okay, I know it's effective for a couple months. Is it likely it'll be effective for six months or a year? And I think the answer is yes. So then the question becomes um, safety. Well, the rule is, at least in the United States, that you have to test at least half of the, the vaccine group for at least two months after the last second dose or last dose. Is that enough time to figure out whether or not you have a serious side effect problem? If you look at the history of serious side effects from vaccines, and there certainly are serious side effects from vaccines, like, for example, a disease called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is this ascending paralysis that, that occurs in roughly one per million doses of influenza vaccine. Or narcolepsy, a disorder of wakefulness that was caused by a squalene adjuvanted influenza vaccine that was given in Europe uh, during 2009-2010. Or um, polio, caused by the polio vaccine. Albert Sabin's oral polio vaccine, but roughly one per every 2.4 million doses, was complicated by paralysis. Um, the Measles-containing vaccine can cause a lowering of the platelet count, which can cause you to have these sort of little showers of broken blood vessels. The yellow fever vaccine can essentially cause something that has a fancy name of viscerotropic disease, which is a nice way of saying yellow fever. I mean, the yellow fever vaccine is a rare cause of something like yellow fever. That, too, occurs roughly one per million doses. All of those awful side effects occur within six weeks of getting a vaccine. So I think by waiting two months, you have, again, reduced a critical amount of uncertainty. Plus, you know, you are going to have systems in place like the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System in the U.S., the Vaccine Safety Data Link, something called vSafe, which is a, an active program that's run by the CDC where you call people on their phone uh, to make sure that they're okay after they've gotten a vaccine. So I think, I think that we have reduced reduced a critical amount of uncertainty by bringing these vaccines even, even this quickly. The reason it's so quick is that the pharmaceutical companies basically had the risk taken out of it for them by the government. I mean, the government said, we'll pay for phase three trials, we'll pay for mass production. I mean, companies would never do it that way. The companies would say, we'll do the phase three trial, and if it works, then we'll mass produce it. We're not going to mass produce it at risk. So the interesting thing is for an idiot like me, uh, it, I assume maybe there was some like supercomputer that was just crunching data quicker. Have we reached the inelastic point for, past which we're not going to get more speedy vaccines because we've got to let this work through these human trials? That's correct. You always have to test and you have to do that. You, you can't get to the point, I think, where you have a computer simulation, at least not now, where you say this is this is I can now accurately predict that this will work in, in X percentage of people. It will be this percentage effective. It will, will have this safety problem that's occurring at this rate. We're not there yet. No. And so historically, what will be the legacy of what do you think the legacy of what is what we're going through at the moment? Is it just a less than what can be what can be achieved when you apply an unlimited amount of money to a traditional practice um, creating vaccines, or or has have we have we pioneered new ways that will be deeply significant the next time we get one of these pandemics? I think both. I mean, I think the amount of money we put into this dr dramatically drove this process to be much faster, and we'll see. I mean, you know, the the messenger RNA vaccine that's being used, the DNA vaccines, these replication defective uh, human adenoviruses or replication defective simian adenoviruses or these replication competent uh, other viruses that are being used as sort of a Trojan horse to bring that SARS-CoV-2 spike protein into the cell are all pretty novel strategies. I mean, we, there's no commercial experience with some of them and very little commercial experience with others and none in in uh, the developed world. So we're going to learn a lot, I think, over the next couple of years. I mean, if you take a step back, um, here's what you have. You have a bad coronavirus that just made its debut in the human population a, a year ago. 
that has caused a number of things that no one would have ever predicted. You would have never predicted it would cause you to, say, have a, a, a weeks-long loss or many weeks-long loss of smell, taste, which says that the virus at some level is going up into your brain, that causes vasculitis, meaning inflammation of blood vessels. And because every organ in your body has a blood supply, every organ be, can be affected. I mean, what respiratory virus that, that's, that's typically a winter retro, respiratory virus, like influenza or parainfluenza or respiratory syncytial virus, that's how this virus was built. This virus was built out of Wuhan as a winter respiratory virus that causes pneumonia. It causes far more than that. It can cause strokes, heart attacks, kidney disease, liver disease. Um, it, 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 uh, it causes a very unusual disease in children, this so-called multi-system inflammatory disease of children. I've never seen that before caused by a virus. I mean, so, so you have this, this difficult to characterize virus, which already has a number of clinical surprises and pathological surprises that you are about to meet with a series of, of vaccine strategies with which we have no commercial experience. I think it's fair to say that we are going to learn a lot over the next couple of years, some things we wish we would have wished we knew now. Um, so we have to be humble, be open-minded, that, that when you don't know things, you have to be humble and, and see how it plays out. You're going to get a vaccine, right? You bet. <laughs> I mean, I'm a person of a certain age, i.e. over 65, who's at risk of this disease. I mean, the, the, I'll look at, the, I, I want to see the data. I mean, right now we're in science by press release time. Um, we will see the data. I'm actually on the FDA's vaccine advisory committee. On December 10th, we will meet and we will go over Pfizer's that, uh, vaccine. And we, I then will see all the data, actually before then, I'll see all the data. And so I'll have a much better sense of, uh, of, of whether, of, of whether this vaccine meets, uh, meets up to its billing. Well, this is, a, um, this is an audio-only podcast, but I can tell you, uh, listeners, that I am looking, uh, I am looking at Paul right now, and I'll tell you, he's not being honest with us because he's, he's taken the youth drug as well because he does not look like he's over 65, Paul. I think you've got some other drugs up your sleeve you need to approve, buddy. Um, thank you very much for coming on this podcast. You've, you've been, it's been incredible. Thank you for giving the historical context to this important moment. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favor to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favor, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there, law of the jungle out there, and uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome, but if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.